There is hope for us yet We are young, we are I am Laura McCallum, and I am Holly Whitaker. This is Home Podcast. Good evening. Holla. No, please don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's my least. Um, All right. So... We are just doing our quick intro for an interview with Rhea Elias, mm-hmm. who Laura is going to drop a quick bio on. Yeah, so Rhea is uh, the author of Harley Loco uh, that came out in 2013. The full title is Harley Loco, a memoir of hard living, hair, and post-punk from the Middle East to the Lower East Side. So much. <laughs> so so good. Uh, <clears throat> she is uh, an artist and a filmmaker and a musician. And she was just, I. this conversation was so fun for me. And I, I think it was for you too. I mean, yeah, we talked, yeah. it, was, it was long. And we, I kind of forgot where I was uh, and forgot what was going on. And just, it was, it was awesome. And we went off in a bunch of different directions, um, talked a lot about addiction. She has a story unlike, definitely unlike ours. Um, in, and unlike you know, she, anybody really I know. I mean, to yeah, be honest, me let's be honest. I, I, on, I, had, I had at this point not really been, you know, exposed uh, personally to anybody that has had, I think, as as severe not even severe but as a story like hers and hers and when I say that I mean like just her her entire her entire story from the you know from where it opens up from age two and from living in Syria and then from moving to America when she was young and to through you know throughout her adolescence and 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 through years and years of addiction to to all sorts of things but mainly heroin and cocaine it was just it was a really um I was nervous because it was just it was almost like uh why was I nervous help me with this well I think we don't we didn't do that we didn't live on the streets we don't have I didn't have like such a big um story I had a big story for me and a big and and it I get it. I don't know why either. I think it's just um, I don't know how to talk. I didn't. Yeah, you know, I don't know how to talk about some of those things. But yeah, um, yeah. And I think that's why. And I think, but it it ended up, you know, like most of these things go. It didn't matter. It was no, great. And it was so funny. Good. Yeah, and fun and hilarious and. Um, now, I will say one of the things, like kind of following up on what I was just saying, one of the reasons I was also really nervous about it was because it really affected me. I mean, I read her book. You had talked about her for a long time, and you had encouraged me to read her book. And then I didn't read her book until 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 she agreed to actually, you know, come onto our podcast, like which was just a gift. I mean, such a huge gift. But I, when I read her book, I just, I, I couldn't read it fast enough. It was one of those books that I kind of put off every other to-do I had to do and fell behind in a lot of things just because I was so consumed in it. And what was so consuming about it was the vulnerability that, like, there's there's this, like, soft, beautiful thing and this really beautiful story of this woman's life. And 
uh, it was just it, it affected me in a way that a lot of things like that's that things don't normally affect me in which I wanted to I mean part of me just wanted to um, hug her and not let go and so I also was a little in, a little nervous that I would come off like fangirly or I don't even know but I was just there was such a reverence for her for not just like where she's been and, and, and how hard her struggle was. I mean, you know, she was on Rikers Island for a period of time. She went to jail. She was, you know, she lived on the street. The book opens up with her being being raped with a gun. And it wasn't even just that, but it was also just the softness that also underlies this, which is the softness that underlies all of our stories, which is we started as young, vulnerable, innocent things, and our lives progress, and these things happen, and, and, and the, like just what we make it through, it was just almost too much. It was just almost too much. Yeah. So It was well said. I agree. And I read it when I, you know, I was in the heavy, heavy, like, end of my drinking, and <clears throat> I remember reading it in the bed that I drank in a lot and, you know, sometimes while drinking. And I just found this weird, beautiful sense of hope in her words and yeah. in her story. So I was thrilled to talk to her and it was it was great. I loved it. And I, yeah. I hope that everyone else will, too. Yeah. And I, I highly encourage anybody to get her book. It is so well it is so worth the read and the time. And I'm, as you know, I've said this a lot, I'm not super into the memoir scene, but I really, yeah. it to me, it didn't read like a memoir. It just read like a story that was very close to my heart. So I, I, you know, I encourage anybody to grab it and read it and also enjoy this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here we go. Off we go. Here's Raya. So, hey, <laughs> morning. Morning. So, Rhea, where? So, I know I just asked you this, but I, I want, I, I think everyone wonders. I didn't, I didn't know where you live now, and you're in New York, yeah. Well, I live in two places. I have, um, I live in House Kitchen in New York, which I just moved into. I was in Chelsea for the last eight years, but I also have a. A, a country place out in um, Milford, well, Little York, New Jersey. Ah. Um, yeah, and it's a it's a church house that was built in the late 1700s. And uh, my best friend Elizabeth Gilbert had bought it um, for herself and her husband about nine nine years ago. And about a year after she lived there, she asked, you know, when she asked me to write my book, she yeah. dared, she dared me to write my book. Um, I, uh, How do you not accept that dare? From exactly, exactly. And uh, so she, she kind of was using it as a an artist in residency type of place. Uh, she moved into a, 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 a proper, a bigger house, and and. So I said, okay. So I went up there and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I spent three years. Like, she ended the artist in residency. She just wanted me to stay there and finish my book. Yeah. And so I did, and I finished it. And then, you know, we had been really good friends before that, like since the year 2000. But since I went up there, we just became, like, closer than ever. And so... um, so she just asked me to stay and like stay and keep the house. 
That's so awesome. Isn't that like everyone's dream? I know. It is everyone's dream. Can can I I just live with my best friend for a while? Yeah, you like not only land with your best friend, but like, like this house is so special that for the first three times that I went to visit her there while she was living there, yeah. Every time I walked into the space, I started crying. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm not a crier. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not like that person. I mean, of course I cry when yeah. there's good reason, but there was really, like, no no reason. I would just walk in and just start bawling. Like, the first time I literally melted into a pool in her lap, and she was like, what the hell's going on? And then, This scene you know, sounds familiar. Right? And I was there just to visit her. And then the second time, so, you know, then we started talking about writing a book and blah, blah, blah. And then the second time I went, I started crying again. Like the minute I walk into this place. Well, it's a, it's a 1790s church yeah. that yeah. was converted into a two bedroom, you know, like lofted cathedral ceiling home, you know? Mm. So there are ghosts and there's just, it's amazing. You know, I walk in. So the third time she was like, dude, you got to come here. <laughs> she's like, you got to work here. She's like, I've never, I've known, she's like, I've known you for, you know, at that point I'd known her for eight years. And she's like, and I've never seen you like this. She's like, this is the place for you. And I'm like, no, I can't. It's out here in New Jersey. I'm in New York. And she's like, just get your ass out here. <laughs> so now I just, you know, so I spent literally three years there um, and uh, and had a little tiny um, studio in Chelsea. And now after eight years, I've sort of flipped things around and I'm working a lot more in the city. And the studio in the city just wasn't big enough. So now I've switched it to where I'm here five days and there on the weekends. But it's wonderful. It's it's great. Yeah, that sounds pretty perfect. Yeah, it's pretty dreamy. You know, for someone like me who, you know, slept on park benches for a long time to just sort of have this amazing one bedroom in Hell's Kitchen and a beautiful, beautiful home and, you know, uh, like a mile away from the Delaware River is amazing. Yeah. Uh, and it's so like, I mean, you wrote the book there, right? So yeah. now it's got your story in there. Too. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Th- those, I own those ghosts now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Trust me. They're, they're mine. I always say, you know, because Liz was like, you know, there's ghosts here. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. But after I was there for like a month, I was like, shit, there are ghosts here. Like, so, uh, you know, cause I had two pit bulls and one day I was cooking and my, and I kept hearing things upstairs and I'm like, well, that's weird. I'm like, tiny must be up there. And so I'm like, tiny, get down here. And I look and he's laying right there in the kitchen with oh my me. God. And I'm like, holy shit. And this wasn't the first time that that happened. So I just stood on the pulpit. (laughs) It's so weird. Such a story. I stood on the pulpit of the church and I was like, look, we have to live together from now on. So just cut it out, will you? And it was like a month after I was there. And they they were cool. They were like, I mean, I really felt like they heard me. Yeah. Because from then on, there was like no 
disruptions. I'm sitting here just like with my mouth hanging open and I'm sure Holly is too because that this is the stuff that like I that experience I can't even I mean did you believe in ghosts? I do but did you before that? Are oh you, yeah okay. I mean I you know I've never had such um a, a strong and and deaf and and finite sort of um, experience with them before, right. but uh, yeah. but I did believe that they existed. I believe because when I was a kid, I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would see like a purple neon old man at the end of my bed, and like <laughs> it happened all the time. Like it happened. It wasn't just once, and it wasn't just the acid. Yeah, it was yeah. like before the acid started, <laughs> and it was like. Before all the hallucinogens started, it started when I was like, you know, six in Syria. And then this, whatever it was, moved to Detroit, Michigan with me because it was the same dude that I would see at the end of my bed that looked like an old wizard, but he was in purple neon. So I knew there were things out there that I just couldn't explain. Yeah. You know? But he didn't really scare me. And, um, because nothing bad ever happened to me. I'd wake up and I'd be like, at first I'd be like, oh my God, what is it? And then after a few years, I'd just be like, hey, I'm going hey, back to sleep now, you know? Yeah. So I did really believe that, that, and I knew that since it was a church, like it was more of like a Sunday school church that people had gotten married, people had died. It was 200, you know, 300 years old. And I'm like, there's got to be ghosts, but they can't be bad. It's not like, you know. Well, if they're hanging out in a church, I mean. Yeah, you're not in a prison, right? <laughs> no. Or so, in just like an old house where you don't know, you know, who died. Yeah, who, who the, if they're a murderer or what. But so I just kind of, like, I made peace with it. But when they wouldn't, like, I literally had the pest control people from New Jersey come out like four times <laughs> to check the attic. And they kept saying, there's nothing there. And I'm like, but there is. There's things running around up there. And they're like, so no. They're like, you have to call different people. <laughs> no, seriously. And I kept saying, Liz, Liz, there's fucking varmint up there. And she's like, well, honey, call this person and just send me the bill. And after like a month and a half, she's like, you've called like four different people. <laughs> I keep getting these bills for like these var like these varmint. <laughs> Has anybody found anything? And I'm like, no. And they've laid traps. And, and she's like, honey, I told you. It's probably the ghosts. Yeah. And I'm like, well, that's fucked up. I'm like, what? You know? She's Is like, there... just got to make peace with them. So I literally yelled at them. I'm like, dudes, I'm fucking here to stay. So like, that's all I And seriously, and they were like, it was just like, it just quieted down. The dogs weren't weird anymore because the dogs were like, like weird all the time. Oh, I, yeah. two, you know, and two city pit bulls, they were just like, what the hell is going on? They were like upstairs, downstairs, downstairs, upstairs, upstairs, downstairs. So dogs have a lot uh, of our tunes to that. So. Yeah, so much, so much. So yeah, that's the, that's the story over there. But, uh, I love it. Okay. So you're in New York today though. I'm in New York today. Yes. I um so I listened to an interview about uh, one of your interviews and you were talking about like how special New York is to you and for so many reasons like just because of where you grew up and 
that you never felt, you know, Syrian enough or American enough. And you, you know, kind of died in New York and then re had a rebirth there. And I love, 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 I love stories of place like that, first mm -hmm. of all. And I, you know, I have a very similar experience with Boston. I moved here when I was 21. I didn't, I'd never been here before. I don't know why. I just was drawn to it. And I've had so many lives here. And now I've gotten sober here, you know, and I... Uh -huh. I just love, I love that part of your story. And Holly and I were talking before the call and she felt the same way about San Francisco. So, well, no, I felt differently about San Francisco. I thought it was interesting because you were saying how you, I mean, you died there and then you were born again. And as you were healing, so is the city itself. And I just moved from San Francisco to LA. And what was, what struck me the most was that I actually died there and, and that there was, and I was almost living as a ghost there. I didn't, I didn't come back. I mean, I came back to life yes, within that city, but I don't feel like I came back to life um, along with the city. I feel like I actually like had, I was kind of walking the streets as a ghost um, of my, and, and almost looking at it as part of my former life. So I think it's interesting that you were able to stay there and then also like create a new life and a new relationship with the city. I think that's, I think that's phenomenal. I didn't, ha I don't think I had that. I think I died and I had to leave. So I think it's, I, I mean, if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was it was uh, it was something that I had to do. It was part of me coming back to life. Was making sure that I could live in the city that was my lover. Like I loved the city so much, and I couldn't imagine because when I when I first got sober, you know, I went to, I went back to Detroit because I was like, I can't in the first year be here. Yeah. And, yeah. and do this here because it was just too much. Not only was it too much as far as people and places and things, because this, I had no people. I had no places. I had yeah. no things, right? Yeah. But it was yeah. the streets themselves that were my people, places, and things. And I didn't really have, I didn't have the money to, to be here. I couldn't live in New York. The only way that I could live in New York would have been to, you know, stay on welfare, live the way that I had been living, which was not an option, which was, you know, the whole. So I went back to Detroit and I, and I sort of got it together for one year and just saved enough money to where, but I knew my ultimate goal. It was like, there's no way that I can stay sane. I may be able to stay clean. Mm -hmm. I may be able to stay clean, but there's no sanity for me of living anywhere outside of New York. And I knew I had to slay that beast yep. in order for me to, to feel like I, I could have a path of recovery. Yeah. You know, I had to, because I knew I had to live in New York. Like, so if I didn't slay that beast, and I, I know that's like everything against what they teach in the rooms, right? Or in recovery. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. But rooms, you know, because yeah. because I've done it with the rooms, and I've done it without the rooms, and I've done it, and I've done it. People say, "Oh, you know, you can't do it by yourself. You can't do it your own way." I don't believe that. I believe that there's a much bigger picture that we can all do things in any possible way, any recipe and ingredients and formula 
that we can pull together because we're creative people. Yes. And as long as we have other people that are like-minded, whether it's AA or NA or CA or whatever A or, you know, yes. a band or, a, a you know, a, a group of creative people, like whatever that is, it's the people that sort of keep you well, right? Who yeah. you yeah. surround yourself with. It's not actually a program because that is designed by people. Anyway, I'm not going to no, go on. No, but I have but, a question about that. So, I mean, I'm yeah. the same. I feel really deeply that you have to do it in your own way. It's what, I mean, I, I have a, it's what I, a business I created in order to kind of promote that idea because AA, AA did not work for me. It was not my thing. Right. And I, I struggled a lot in the beginning with this idea that um, if, that I was, I felt, um, I was really torn between an idea that it was my ego talking and I was just fucking kidding myself and also this idea that I truly knew what I was doing, this gut feeling versus this like guilt feeling that I was doing something wrong. And I'm wondering right. if you struggle with that, like in finding your own way, if you struggle with that same, that like how oh, you God. came to be comfortable with doing it your own way. Well, it's taken me years and years and years. And yes, I completely agree with you with the, the guilt of and and wondering if I if it's just my ego, yeah. and and the and, fear, right? The fear and 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 the fear of like, oh my God, is this everything I've ever ever learned about the addict? Of like, I'm talking myself back into using. Yeah. You know, this is the beginning of a slip. I don't want to. I don't believe in AA. I don't. It's not that I don't believe. I believe in it. Mm -hmm. But AA only gets five five percent, three to five percent of people sober. So what happens to the other 95% of people? We just give up on them? Right, I right. don't think so. Right. I don't think so. There are other ways, and I've seen people that are, in quotes, sober. If I were an AA thumper, I would have, in quotes, sober with a roll of the eye, which is bullshit. Yeah. Because yeah. if you're clean and you're living life the way that you want to live it, and your life isn't unmanageable, Everybody's thoughts and feelings and everything is unmanageable, right? Yeah. So many times, I don't care whether you're a fucking AA or not. Like, my best friends that are 25 years sober in AA are more unmanageable than I've ever been. Yeah. <laughs> At two years sober, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so, when I was in the rooms, and you know, I, I, I don't even want to get into that because so many of my friends, anyway, I went through a whole thing of like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to use bits and pieces of everything. Yep. And I don't have to be stuck to one thing. I because, love that. Yeah. You know, because I'm not one thing. I'm not one thing. And one thing has never worked for me. And not one drug, not one, you know, food, one not one, yeah. you know, not one chick, not one, you know, it, nothing. So, I had to take, you know, my steps of recovery and and do it the way that I did it. And you know, it's it's not perfect and nor do I expect it to be, nor do I want it to be. It's right. like it's so much more interesting, you know, this way. Um so Anyway, I don't I don't know what the question was. No, I love I this is a I mean, this is what Holly and I spend a lot of time talking about and really the reason why we even started this show because I got you know initially sober with AA and I still go and I have a ton of friends there and I love it but I very much take 
what works and and I do a ton of other stuff and she didn't have that path and it was like oh my god we're talking and we love each other and we don't have to have one path be right or wrong in order for us to both be strong and and do this you know and and it's it's huge and it keeps a lot of people out um just the duality of you know thinking and and it and it's a lot of the reason why we're talking so i'm glad you went down that that tangent yeah you know i mean my biggest thing is i okay so and as cliche as this sounds i'm a moderate in everything you know what i mean and i i don't believe in fundamentalism and aa um as as amazing as it is and as many people as it helps and it is a a miracle it really is a miracle you know but when you even take that and you become an AA fundamentalist where you have no vision of anything else that could possibly be okay or work I have a problem with that and just recently and I don't know if I want you to um, put this in there right now (laughs) Just recently, I um, so I've been clean since 1997, right? Mm-hmm. So I've been I've been so clean and sober since 1997, and after 17 years of um, of sobriety, which was two years ago, I I was like, you know, I never drank. The, the, if you read my book, dr- drinking, drinking was never drinking was yeah. never ever 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 a part of my story. Yeah. Nor did I like it, nor was I, it was just never worked fast enough for me. I yeah. was like, give me the real deal, you know? Like, I, this is a waste of time and calories. Because yeah. <laughs> I had food issues too, you know? So I was just like, no, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do that. Well, a couple of years ago, I, I had been, um, I'm going to tell you the story really quick. I'd been, um, I have a lot of gastro, uh, stuff that that's going on with me, and so this doctor told me I should drink bitters, right? Mm. So I'm like, okay, cool. So I start drinking bitters, and not even thinking. I mean, my doctor totally knew I was in in the program, right? Yeah. And he was like, no, no, have have like a shot of bitters. They will soothe your, you know, because I, I had my um, my esophagus stretched and like all this, you know, all the stuff from all the using like yeah. scar tissue all that so he said um drink bitters and I was like okay so I buy bitters and I would have like a shot every night right before I ate and I was able to keep my food down and it was working really great and then my nephew who's like 30 he we're out to dinner and I order a shot of bitters and he goes dude because you know those have alcohol in them don't you and I'm like, no, they don't. I'm like, my doctor told me to drink them. And he's like, he goes and gets the bottle and he's like, they have 47%. He's like, it has more alcohol in it than like scotch. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, really? And I'm like, really? I'm like, that's wild. I'm like, because I've never even, I, I don't, I never even got drunk from liquor when I drank it. Like yeah. when I did drink it as a teen, I would be the only one that would be like, okay, let's go. I, I don't feel anything, you know, So, which is why I never drank it. So I was like, wow, this is weird. So I've been drinking a shot of scotch like every day yeah. <laughs> like, and or like almost before every meal and like not even thinking about it. And, and I'm like, 
Well, if that's that? alcohol, yeah. then I'm not an alcoholic. I'm yeah. like, uh, I'm totally not an alcoholic. And I hear somebody going, one of you guys going, uh, okay, which is my fear. I went into, after 17 years of being clean and sober, I went into this fear, shock, horror, right, of like, uh -huh. oh, my God, has this been a slip for two years? Have the, ha, Have I... What is going on? Blah, blah, blah. And I had to pull up my grown-up pants, right? Yep. And, and sit down with myself and say, Rhea, has drinking two shots of liquor a day changed your life in any way? Have you felt buzzed? Have you, um, has any, any of that? I mean, I was going on tour in Australia with Liz for six weeks and you know you, you can't really get I mean you can get bitters in Australia but when we went somewhere else I think it was Bali I had to pack like 10 bottles of those little <laughs> bottles of liquor of, of bitters to take with me because I literally couldn't eat yeah. without them right so like my food would just come up it wouldn't go down and uh, and it was it was bogue like it was it was bad right yeah so I was like, okay, put your big girl pants on. This is like, you've got to make a decision here. Like, I know that AA is going to fucking freak out, right? My, yeah. I have friends of 17, 18 years in AA that I love. And I was like, but this is bigger than that. This yeah. is me. And this is my decision. And this is who I believe I am after 17 years of being sober. Yeah. This is, I get to make these decisions That's for right. me now. That's right. Right? And AA has nothing to do about it. And if you, you are going to hang on to your dogma, your fundamentalist bullshit dogma from AA and like, like, you know, cast me out because of something that is working for me, then be my guest because this is my life, right? I've worked really hard to get here. And, and I have it good and I'm very, and so I had to really like think, is this, is this my ego? Should I just like repent, stop drinking these and go back to AA and be like, and feel oh like shit physically. Yeah. And, and, and let's not forget you, I slipped, I've lost, you lost your like, sobriety. Oh, yeah. fuck that. Yeah. yeah, shit. yeah. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. It's bullshit. What I see it as, it's, it's a metaphor for, for all of our belief systems and all of our individual power in any situation, in any aspect of our lives, whether it's sexuality or work or religion, spirituality. I mean, you ha there has to be room for your own power and your own decision. And, and the, the decision, you know, a lot of things I think that rub people the wrong way in any of those cases is just operating out of fear. Like, well, if you're doing that, what does that mean for me? Right. You know, if and and to understand that it doesn't threaten you. Like, look, this, all of these things. If we're able to live big and live from a place of love and not fear as much as we can, we're all we're all more empowered by that. And your sobriety is just as legitimate as mine and Holly's and anyone's who's Absolutely. living sober. And if one of my friends, like, if my ex wife said that she was drinking, but I know that she's an alcoholic. You know, I knew that she, she was an alcoholic, 
But if she said, hey, I think I got this. I think I'm going to start drinking. I'd be fucking freaked out. I'd be like, but wait, you were an alcoholic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but but I, I would watch her. I wouldn't judge her, but I would watch her. I'd be like, well, you know where to go if it gets bad. Like, And that's what I would tell my friends Like that I told. I'm like, look, you guys, this isn't my first rodeo. And if I feel like I ever have a problem with alcohol, I know where to go, right? Yeah. Right. And you weren't and like shutting up about it. You weren't like, I'm going to keep this little thing to myself and my doctor. You know, it's your no, the secrets are stupid. You know, yeah. the minute you keep it, then it, it turns into something. Oh, I'm a loser. I'm an ad. I'm an addict alcoholic that's drinking bitters. I'm stupid. You know, yeah. no, all that self-talk that my head is, my head has enough of its own personality where I don't have to like feed into it. You know what I mean? Like what I do with my head is just, try to talk it out of shit, you know? Uh, <laughs> so, so. Oh, I love it. I love all of that. So what, we, um, I'm like, where do we ask next? Cause, well, cause we have like 50 that questions. And that, was, that was amazing. <laughs> and I know you, and I don't, I don't have to leave right at 12 because my meeting canceled. So oh, okay. we're not in a rush. Oh, good. Okay. So that feels better. You know, I um, want, I want to, I kind of have one question. It's like, it's a burning question. Um, so, and it's, it has nothing to do with what we just talked about. It has something to do with your book. So when you open up the book, you talk about this experience that you have with your brother yeah. when you're two, I think you were two years old or maybe three. Yes. And you don't talk about how that affected you, but it you talk about it in in a way that um, in a way breaks my heart, and also in a way that is very familiar to me. Um, meaning, like these things that happened to us at a really really young age that set the entire stage for our lives and our development. And I'm just I what I really wanted to know is when you wrote that, like what what do you feel? Like, what do you feel that, what did that do? Like, what was that moment that you remember so clearly at such a young age when, when your brother said, trust me, jump, and he had caught all your other sisters and all your other siblings, and then you jump, and then he moves, and then you break your leg. I know that you were in traction, and I know that you, you know, that you were set aside, or you were set out, um, and you, you know, were not in, in the mix of things, but I also am just curious about, like, how that how that has essentially like folded into your life and why you, and, and also why you started the book off with that story. Well, that has probably um, affected and folded into my life more. That particular scenario has probably laid down the path of who Rhea became as a young adult as you know, it was the first thing I remember in my life. Yeah, it was. It was the. Um, it was my first memory, and and it was a horrible one. And the fact that that was my first memory of trust. Yeah, basically fucked me up for a really long time. And not only was it trust. Had it been my sister. Maybe I wouldn't be a lesbian. I don't know. Had it been, maybe I'd be straight. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I was born gay or if I became gay. Like, you know, but I'm definitely gay. (laughs) But like, you know, but like, I I don't know. I know that, you know, a lot of people, most people are really born that way. And, you know, some people sort of become that way because of experiential things, right? 
And I'm not saying that that particular thing made me gay. I'm not saying that at all. But what that thing did was it broke my trust in people and in people that were older than in people, period. And especially especially men. And especially men. And, you know, which is why I gravitated so much towards, like, my mom. Like, me and my mom had just this unspeakable connection, right? It was Mm -hmm. this connection that I don't even know. While I wrote the book, I don't, not even sure if I really, really, you know, um, massaged that part of me because it was really painful to even, I didn't know how to work it into that book. Um, but that experience had, had a profound effect on me for the rest of my life because I, I walked around from a two year old kid or I stopped walking around from a two-year-old kid until, you know, even now, you know, when somebody says, trust me, especially when they say it, right? <laughs> it's so bizarre. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be 56 in four months, girls, in three months, right? No, in two uh, months, in April. You're so cool. <laughs> and, and, and the, you know, and when somebody still says, oh, just trust me, I got this, I'm like, don't ever say that to me because you know what if trust you don't have to ask for trust is earned right yeah and at such a such a young age when he said trust me trust me and I jumped and broke my leg that broke every sense of trust I could ever have from that time forward and especially by guys especially by boys yeah and so therefore it put me at a disadvantage in life until I was strong enough, old enough and strong enough and wise enough and, and aware enough to know that it didn't matter whether I trusted boys or not until I found trust in other places. Yeah. Did you, have you talked to him? I mean, have you made peace with him over this? That was like the other burning question was, I mean, does he know the extent of this and, and have you guys ever talked about it? You know, I've tried to talk to him about it and he always, you know, and I can see like he was a jokester. I can see that there was no malice when he did it. He was Yes, he was 13, 14. We know how 13, 14 year old yeah. boys are. They think things are really funny that are kind of sick. Yeah. They think, you know what I mean? Like they're like, they're like, they're like little, I hate to say it, they're like little retards because they're not, <laughs> they're not fully formed yet. They're like right in between sort of becoming a person and still being a child. Yeah. And yeah. so their hormones are crazy. They're, you know, and he just, I mean, he always said, I didn't, I didn't mean to like break. Cause I'm, I used to say, you broke my leg. You, you know, you were so mean. And he'd be like, I didn't mean to be mean. Like, I didn't mean to be mean. I was just, it was funny. Like we just thought, oh, you'd fall, you'd fall off the couch and that would be it. He goes, but it was marble and you, like you broke your leg and I didn't mean that, you know? And which the I more, bet is so true. Like, I which is so true. Which is so true. And I hated him until I was in my 20s and I had my little nephew with me, Sammy. 
he was two years old and me and my boyfriend at the time, Craig, no, maybe I was 18. We were walking, um, home from like a, uh, a supermarket and he, he was between us. We each had a hand of his and we're walking, we've got groceries. We're going to do a, um, a cookout. And we walk over this little tiny curb. It was not even a big curb. It was a little one, like in a condo complex in Michigan. And he just, he goes, he steps over the curb and he falls. And he starts wailing, crying. And I said to my boyfriend at the time, Craig, I said, I think he's hurt. And he goes, no, he's just being a baby. He's like, look at that curb. It's like two inches. So I pick him up. I take him back to the condo, right? My sister and her husband are away. They're at a party. We're in charge of babysitting Sammy. And every time I put him down, he would wail. And I was like, there's something wrong with this kid. I pull his pants down and his thigh was like, like so blown up. It was so swollen. And it was the exact same place. I broke my um, first leg the first time. So instantly I was like, Craig, he has broken his leg and it was like all blue. And Craig was like, no way, no way. And I'm like, Craig, I'm telling you it's broken. So my brother-in-law's a doctor. So I called my sister right away. They came home and I realized like, even at my age, at the age of 18 or 20, like I couldn't help that happening. I had his hand. We were so gentle with him. He fell and he broke his leg. And do you know, from then on, my sister always says, Oh, that time that you broke Sammy's leg. And I'm like, I didn't do anything. (laughs) I'm like, I didn't do anything. And it's funny because Sammy and I, he's now 36 and I'm 56. And he is like one of my best, best friends. He lives here in New York. But he doesn't remember it as me breaking his leg. He remembers it as him falling off of the curb. So we all have our own filters You know, for me, it was like jump, jump, jump. And because I was so scared of jumping off that couch, but he was laying there like Jesus with open arms and I'd seen him wrap up the other two. I was like, oh, I'm safe. I can jump into Ferris's arms because, you know, and I did and he moved and it was a cruel, it was a cruel joke on me. But with Sammy, we had his arms, you know, he was being held and so... He doesn't see it as anything but a really bad accident, you know. But my sister didn't see it, and she's like, oh, you did this to my son. And I'm like, no, I didn't. I really didn't, you know. So it's just all a filter. My brother and I have, since since this other thing happened with Sammy, sort of worked through it. I sort of got it like, oh, right. And it was just a stupid accident, you know, back then, too. And I told him, and he was like, I don't care. I don't care what you think. I know, you know, because he's such a bastard. He's like, I don't care what you think. I, you know, he's 12 years older than me. He's a dentist and a lawyer. Okay? Oh, God. Oh, God. So he's like, is, there, he's is he like the only one? I've never heard of that combo. Yeah. You know, he's just such an overachiever. So he's like, I don't care what you think of me. You know, you're like, you're the fucked up one. I don't care. And I'm okay, great. You know, I'm glad these days. Yeah. So, but so, do you so do you feel like that's? Um, I mean, in all these things that happen to us, you know, do you feel? I mean, would you change a thing on that? Would you change a thing? Do you feel like that yeah. was kind of the yeah, yeah? 
I mean, everything is, everything that happens is the sort of, the thing that drives you into the next thing, you know what I mean? So, like, had I trusted, had I had so much trust, I don't know, maybe I would have turned out more like my, the rest of my family. Maybe I wouldn't have been, you know, such a um, rebel. Maybe, you know, and all those things have brought me to the person that I am now, which I really kind of really like. Yeah. You know, I really like this person. And I think I've always liked the, the person that I became, you know, because that person was so different and so much more interesting than my surroundings yeah. of people. Yeah. You know, so even though I was fucked up and even though at points I was homeless and even though I like the first scene in the book where I was, you know, raped with a gun, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. all that stuff. Looking back, it was, you know, it was hard. I had to have, you know, I had to go through therapy, but looking at it now, it's like a movie of a really interesting person that just happens to be me yeah. that just happened to have made it because had I died, it wouldn't have been so interesting. Oh, I mean, I love everything about your story, and I, I see it that way, too. What you just said made me think of something that Holly and I both kind of latched onto with the book, and that was how you say, you know, you were always, like, on the edge and searching for the edge and trying to ride the edge and, like, push things as far as you possibly could, and that maybe when you arrived to the point where you saw that maybe being straight, maybe being clean was your edge, like, maybe living life without all of this was about as subversive as it got, you know, as, as edgy yeah. as it got. And, you know, is that, has that been your experience? Like, Absolutely. That There's nothing edgier than living life with no substance. I mean, there's nothing, there's everything, every, you know, a sliver of, well, sliver of wood. When I put fire in my thing, I'm like, Oh, oh. <laughs> you know, it's a fucking sliver. I used to have needles hanging out of my arms and, <laughs> and abscesses everywhere. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I get a sliver on my thumb and I'm like, I need my glasses. I need my, I need my, um, the glasses so I can see it. And I need my, uh, what do you call it? The, 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 tweezers? the, the tweezers. Thank you. <laughs> the tweezers so I can get at it. Cause this hurts so much. I can't stand it. When I rub it on my pants, it hurts. You know, <sighs> that's, so that's, and that's like on one end. And then on the other is like death and heartbreak and love and, um, and life and everything and fear and, you know, worry and money and, the spectrum, the whole spectrum. The whole spectrum and everything is clear and it's like all out there on a grid that you can actually see it because we're so aware, right? Yeah. We're so overtly aware of everything that it's fucking exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> and, and once you become aware, you cannot become unaware. Yeah. Yeah. So once you have the awareness... You're just like you're you're clicking on all cylinders, right? And it's like sometimes I have to, you know, lay down and just meditate so I can sleep. I have to just like stop it. Like I people say, Are you bored? And I'm like, Me? With my like with my brain, 
like my brain is like five different neighborhoods. Like, you know, <laughs> it's five boroughs. You know, if I'm in there, I'm like always hanging out in the wrong one. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so I love I'm, you. <laughs> I'm never bored. I'm just exhausted. Is it exhausts me yeah. to yeah. know so much and to not know a fucking thing at all. Yes. You know? Yes. And to have it just get more and more like that. I mean, that just like the divide gets further and further. It's like there's a big erasing every, you know, so often. Where Let me like, tell you something. Um, the less I know, the happier that I am. And yeah. I always, when people say ignorance is bliss, I really do understand it now because I feel like life can just like slow down if I'm just not like people, you know, I had this girlfriend for, a year who's very sort of politically and socially active and she's a pilot and she runs a, uh, what do you call it? A place in Uganda or in Kenya, a, a, a home, you know, for children. She's, she's amazing, 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 amazing. And, um, but like, you know, I'm Syrian, right? And I'm watching what's happening to my home and my family mm -hmm. in Syria. And, so people say to me, um, do you have any comments? And I'm like, no. no. <laughs> and they're like, why? And I'm like, because I don't know anything. Yeah. And they're like, but you're Syrian. You're like first generation. Like you have, like you were born there. You have family that lives there. You were just there the Christmas and New Year's before all this stuff started. I was there in 2009-10 before the war started there. And I'm like, yeah. And it was amazing. It was beautiful. I loved it. And, you know, they try to get me to talk about, like, politics or religion or – and I'm like, you know what? I have nothing. If I knew, yeah. if I knew, if I could give you an opinion and stand behind it as something that I knew, I would be the smartest person on the planet. And that I am not. So for me – to talk out of my ass and and give you a scenario that might intrigue you that you might believe it's not going to be the right one and I'm not going to do it can I tell you from a personal space how it feels yes it hurts my cousins and my aunts are there they're hurting nobody can get them out now it's too late and let's just leave it at that and they're just like but don't you Assad and this and I'm like no. no of course I have my opinions but that's just what they are they're opinions yep. and I won't you know I love being stupid about this because I'm not gonna solve it and people get so irate but don't you want to do things don't you want to help and I'm like I am helping yeah not by, here <laughs> by being quiet by being calm and being quiet and just allowing the people that may know what to do, allowing them to do it. And if that's everybody killing themselves over there, then that's what they have to do. But I don't have to do, I don't have to do anything. If you want me to, you know, give money to a, a, a sound organization, like my sister has one, where she gets 24 women out of Syria um, into colleges in the United States every year. She sponsors a charity. 
I'm like, I work on that with her. That's what we can do in our little hub. Right. We make, we make, you know, two hundred thousand dollars. We take four, twenty-four women that have reached their baccalaureate, and we find and we help to pay for their college here in the United States. That's how we help. Can we help in any other way? I can't. I can't go there. Yeah, it's I don't a, know. It's such a perfect system. If you, I was just talking about this topic with one of my friends. Um, he cares about politics a lot. I have nothing to say about it. And whenever I, op- if I open my mouth, it's not going to be anything informed. And it's, you know, I've done it before just for the sake of joining conversation, and I hate myself for it because I have nothing to say. But do I have something to say? And I, you know, there's there's all these things like Holly, um, you you know this quote, but there's a certain kind of pain that you are put on the plane to on the in the world to alleviate, right? If someone needs to talk to you about addiction because of what you've experienced, you're on. If you someone wants to talk to you about music, you can talk to you know you can talk about it. You know what you're saying. But we all can't just because we can do anything. Like we don't we can't we don't do everything. And I think that there's so much wisdom in and saying that and like freedom and just saying, I've got nothing for this. I've got nothing to say about it. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's just so nice to, uh, to know that you're stupid yeah. about something. And that you, know? you're, you only are what you are. It's, yeah. And yeah. To, that alleviates so much, you know, there's, there's a real, there's a real beauty in being stupid about certain things, yes, you know? <laughs> and I see that all the time and people think, how could it, how can it be beautiful to be stupid about something? And I'm like, it just is because I don't have to give it another thought. I can shift my energy into something I'm really smart with. Yes. You know, I can use that energy. I don't have to expend energy on stuff that I'm just never going to be smart with. Right. You know, that you, so I'm, yeah. I'll just, I'll pick up the stupid card. I'm, I'm not too proud. No. You know, I'm stupid about a lot of things and it's okay. You know, it's okay. I've just learn that that's fine. I just think you should write a book about this, Raya. Right? Titled, like, I know what I'm stupid about. And Yeah, I'll write a chapter for you. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so you, the speaking of things that you're smart with, like, so what, what is your, what does your life look like now? Like, what are your, what are your days consumed with? What are you working oh, on? God. Oh, my life is so good. Um, okay, so <laughs> right now, okay, so today <laughs> I have this. Yeah. <clears throat> at four o'clock, you know, I sell real estate in New York City. Yeah, I remember you writing about and that. And I sell really high-end. I mean, I do all-end, but, you know, all real estate is kind of high-end in the city. Yeah. But um, I saw a lot of new development, and I, I've been doing it for – I'm really good at this thing because I'm a hustler, right? Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> you know how to cop a deal. So, yeah, I, I'm a real hustler. And in the last 10 years, um, my ex-wife got into real estate, and she – and I, and I have so much integrity around like New York and finding people homes and making people money. And, and you know, since the, um, the market has been so, so vicious, right, the stock market, I tell people to put their money in real estate in New York. So in the last 10 years, I've been doing that for certain clients. I started with one or two and bought for them in pre-construction real estate and they've doubled their money and some of them have made more than that. So then they give me more money and I buy more property and then I rent it for them. And that's kind of what I <clears throat> do as a job to keep my lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> when I wrote my book, I took 
three, well, it was 2008, so the real estate market kind of crashed. Yeah. And I was like, oh, great time to go write my book. <clears throat> but while I was writing it, since it's only an hour away, my house, I was still, I had a partner and I was still dipping in and, and doing it. And <clears throat> in the past year, it has really sort of come back to life. <clears throat> and since I was touring with my book and with my music, with my art for the last three years after my book came out, I kind of was making real estate a second, um, uh, a, a, you know, like a second career yeah, and yeah. really focusing on the book and the tours and because that's what I love. So <clears throat> that's all sort of coming to an end. So I just thought, okay, well, this thing is the thing that helps to keep me in a place where I'm never worried about money where I, you know, money has always come easy for me because I land on my feet. I can pull my scissors out, start cutting hair, yeah. you know, and like yesterday I cut hair all day. I, I have like 10 people that won't let go. So I've been I was so day. wondering if you still, I was like, I wonder if I can get you someday if I come oh, to New York. I know. I was thinking the same thing. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> day. Like I made a hair day yesterday at my friend's studio. I had 10 people come in. You know, I made a shit ton of cash, yeah. and you know, and then, and that was like one day a month. So yeah. these people I've known for twenty years, they won't let go. I love them; they're like my family. So they come in, I do their hair. So that's one thing. The other thing that I do is like today I have a you know a huge. Well, I have this, and then I have this huge pitch this afternoon to. I don't know if you guys watch Million Dollar Listings. I do. I was going to ask you if you knew the guys. Sorry. Okay. So we're <laughs> me and Gigi, who was my ex-wife, who we're just friends now. We're business partners. Are pitching Frederick and John like this whole thing. Oh my god. They, they work at our office, so we know each no. other. Okay. Yeah. So I'm we a, are bravo. We're bravo. Doing, we're doing a huge new development pitch for them at four o'clock. Oh my god. That's so exciting. That's what my day consists Wait, of. Wait, are you going to be fun. on TV? Are you going to be recorded? Is this for the show? I'm going to be recording it for the show, maybe. But the other thing is, is I really want to start my own show because me and my partner, my business partner, are ex-wives, right? Yeah. And is she in the book? Is she one of the ones in the book? No. She ended – I met her two years sober. Okay. okay. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So she's not in the book, but – Gigi, Gigi's amazing and she's, you know, she's a real go-getter and she's just awesome. And so we broke up after being married for eight years, we broke up and we're, but it was so mutual that we both were like, oh my God, I love you so much. Let's just stay in each other's lives and let's be family. And we're like, okay. Oh, love it. So, you know, so, and it's really the first like really healthy, healthy, healthy relationship after a breakup that I've had. I have many of my exes that are friends, but not like this, not like family. Yeah. So we yeah. really launched our own. I mean, we're with Douglas Solomon, but we have our own team. And, and so I thought I'm in show business. Like I, you know, I know enough people. Why shouldn't we have our own show? I have an agent in LA, you know, why can't I pitch my own million dollars listing show? That's not what these like fabulous gay boys that are like out there being bitchy and catty <laughs> but so it mean. could be like it could be like a chick version of it that's like 
hey, me and my ex-wife, it could be like a grassroots type of show that I think a lot of people could really relate to. Oh, totally. And you're so like, you're such a, I mean, I was telling Holly that like you in your book and anytime I hear you speak or even listen to your music, like you've got the the thing that people just want to be around you and listen to you. And, and you would, it would be so fun to watch you like in that capacity too. Are you kidding? In New York? I mean, I think it would be fun. So I'm thinking of maybe, you know, just just taking some of my own money and shooting a really short pilot yeah. and seeing yeah. if they could spring off like a chick chick pilot of of that because, you know, that's kind of getting old too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we'd make it so much more interesting because we'd have all the gurus. I'd have Brene Brown on there and Liz yeah. Gilbert and, <laughs> yeah. you know, fucking Cheryl and like Rob Bell and, you know, I'd have like all these like people. We're talking know. to Rob Bell next week, by the way. Oh my God, tell him I said hi. I'm going to see him. Um, I am going to see Rob in LA in uh, over Memorial Day. Oh, nice. You have to say hi to He's a friend of mine. He's <laughs> lovely. Mm. Yeah, he's lovely. He's so cool. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, so, yeah, did you listen to the last part of my Robcast with him? It was, no. Liz, it was Liz's podcast, but I happened to walk into his house oh. in five minutes. So. Oh, no, I, I knew that he was on the um, – so this was on the Big Magic one? No, 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 um, no. she was on his. This was his. Oh, she, you were on Robcast. Liz, yeah, Liz was on his Robcast, and I came in at the tail end. Right? Oh, no, I didn't hear that or, one. <laughs> yeah, and then we all went in his um, – in his – uh, back room and we jammed. I jammed on the drums. He played guitar oh, and, his no son, and his son played bass and Liz danced around like a goon. It was really fun. <laughs> it was so much fun. I love it. No, I heard his son. Yeah, I love his podcast. It's one of the, yeah, he's great. He's yeah, funny. He's awesome. I saw him like um, perform in Boston last year and I was blown away. He, he played at the House of Blues. And this was when I was really newly sober. And so being um, out, especially at the House of Blues, where I go, because my big thing was going to shows. I hadn't been in there, you know, for a while. And I it and for me to be out on like a Friday night late, it right. was it was it was an ordeal. And it was it was transformative for me because it was like, this is this is what I could do. This is what I could be doing um, out, you know, like I don't have to be out drinking anymore. Right, right. It was, it was amazing. Plus, I mean, Which everything. one did he do? Did he do his thing where he drew the line? And yeah, where he drew uh, the triangle, you know. The and talked about the molecular change. That, that whole thing sparked my whole yeah. theory that I'm working on for a TED Talk base. I mean, not yeah. that I had gotten one yet, but I'm working on this whole idea of, the transformation of atoms and molecules, yes. how every seven years we change. So why mm -hmm. couldn't we change? Why couldn't our molecular structure change so much yes. after years and years and years that we could get rid of that thing that we're so afraid of? Well, it's like everything we've been talking about today. I mean, it's... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. no, it, it, it totally blew my mind. I literally, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. stood there just, it, it's like, crying you know watching yeah. him and yeah so yeah. big stuff so um uh so why where were we yeah start saying that? um i was saying Cheryl Str oh oh because of the the real estate thing you yeah. know uh the show so besides for that so besides for the real estate thing that i'm doing liz and i are actually writing music oh <laughs> <get out. laughs> wait she she started um 
while she was on this last tour for Big Magic, she started writing poetry up on the plane. Yeah. Every time she went from one place to another, she would write this piece of poetry about an old love or an old boyfriend or an old something that, that she had. And so she said to me one day, she was like, I've been writing poetry. And I was like, cool, man, let me see it. And she was like, do you, she was like, I, I feel like one of the pieces could be a song. She goes, do you want to help me write a song? And I was like, fuck yeah, I want to help you write a song. (laughs) I said, let me see it, you know? And so we got together and, uh, and she pulled out her laptop and she showed me one piece of poetry and it was literally like a song. It was like, she had every element in it. She had like the verse, the chorus, the bridge needed a little bit of, you know, just massaging, but it was like, it was all there. Mm -hmm. And as I was sitting there, I had got this beat in my head and I just pulled out my iPhone and we sat in her apartment and we ended up recording three songs. Uh What? Who's doing what? Who's doing what in the room? Well, she's the, the, there's a couple, she has a really good voice. So she's going to be singing a couple of them and I'm going to be singing. So far we have like, five songs that we've done now. I'm playing, I'm going to be producing the music. So we're, as soon as she gets back from Australia, we're, we've been so excited. I just went down to Miami two weeks ago before she left for Australia and hung out for five days. And all we did was write nice. songs. I took my guitar down there and we just, cause it was rainy out. We had only one beach day. So we're like, all right, let's just do this. You know? So we have been writing songs and they're really good like they're because it's like it's like it's like bernie taupin and elton john yeah like she's giving me the words and then i'm just like the her word um progressions are making me write songs differently Mm -hmm. which is really cool and then the way that i normally write songs but then this last time she sent she sent me a song and she said, this one's for you. And it's called forgiveness. And I just started crying and I opened it up and I swear to God, it is the most beautiful song. And within 15 minutes, I wrote every chord progression and recorded it on my iPhone, like with the lyrics. And it was like, it was like, I like purged it out and it's beautiful. And then I sent it to her and she was like, Oh my God, baby, this is, it's like, it's a hit, you know? Well, it just works so easily, right? It's like, it's kind of, it's one of those things that I love that where it's just like, not only do you guys already have like a synthesis with your friendship, but then it's just something that comes so natural, like some things that should be, that are so hard, so hard for some people or so hard even for us just sometimes are so smooth and flow and so quick and I love I think that's where the best stuff comes from absolutely and I I really I really believe that you know when you have trust with somebody Mm -hmm. you know and that that's built for so long and then and you have admiration for that person Mm -hmm. and they make you being around them makes being around Liz makes me a better person and vice versa like we both say that all the time because because we have qualities that that neither of us have that we both give to each other and and when those qualities are molded together you know they make us each better 
And so when there's trust and admiration and respect and that, and then somebody gives you something, it's like you want to do your best with it. Yeah. You know, yeah. you want to like give it your all because you know that this person has given it its all, right? Yeah. They're all. That's so yeah. awesome. It's like the most, the best magic that there is. Yes. You know, yeah. what it, does it sound like your music? Because I listen to your music and it, it, it does. does. Yeah. It sounds like my music, but it sounds like her, like her too. In there. Yeah. yeah. Oh my like, God. I can't When wait. she sings the two songs that she sings, it sounds like she's more, um, it's funny because she's more like uh, uh, country western, if I, which is a, a music that I'm so not into, right? Yeah. But, but like I can get as folksy as like kind of folksy, but it's always like pop or always like, has like, yeah. It always has like a new music sort of beat to it, like the folksy piece, you know? But like when when I wrote the music to this one piece that was kind of folksy, and then when she sings it, it sounds like (laughs) it sound it she takes it to a different place. Like she takes it to uh, a, a folksy Baezi place, which yeah. is kind of cool, you know, because I've never done that. But then she'll write something for me, and like I start playing it, and and I start singing it, and it sounds like Oasis or something, uh, or, yeah. or it sounds like Sinead O'Connor, you know. Oh, um, what a bitch! I can't believe she can sing. Oh yeah, she's a really good voice. That's so funny. That's yeah, awesome. it's really cool. And that's and you know, and that's been why we do karaoke so much now is because it's so oh, much right. fun. Because we just go out there and we get all of our, you know, angst out and like I never knew she could sing before I heard her sing karaoke and then I was like, Holy shit, dude, you can sing <laughs> And she was like, Yeah, I can sing and like her family's like nobody can sing. None of the Gilberts can sing. And I'm like, she can fucking sing, you guys. <laughs> so, you know, so it's like, it's it's cool. So I can't wait to, we're going to go into a studio when she gets back. And I am going to produce, which I've never done. I've never produced. Mm. I've always had a producer. Yeah, how cool is that? Uh, yeah, and I just figure, you know what? There's no stakes here. No. It's me and my buddy going in to have a blast. Yeah, you know, like yeah. there's I, if I have an engineer there and I have all the equi- all the uh, instruments, you know, I can produce this thing any way I see fit, and I don't have to have a boss in there saying, "Oh, I think the bass should sound like this." It's like it's going to be a free for all. It's going to be so much fun. Yeah, you know, we're going to go in there and just layer a bunch of sounds, and you know, I'm going to be the Eno to her Bowie. I'm going to be the, you know, just like, I'm just going to have a ball. So I'm really excited about that. That's my next creative creative project that I'm working on. That's can't awesome. wait. That's yeah. Awesome. So yeah, your life is pretty, pretty great. Are you, are you dating anyone? I'm not right now. You know, I broke up with my pilot about six months ago. And, um. What do you mean your pilot? My, I had a, I was dating a Swedish pilot for Swiss Air, a woman that I met. Um, she's a captain for Swiss Air. Did you meet her on the airplane? Oh, yeah. No, I didn't meet her on the airplane. I met her. She was in New York on rotation with and was at a friend of mine's, and I walked in, and I was like, whoa. Yeah. 
I, I was like, let me take you to dinner. And she was like, what? She, you know, she's <laughs> Swedish, tall. She looks like Muriel Hemingway, you know. <laughs> she's like, and my friend's like, dude, she's a captain. She's a pilot. And I'm like, oh, oh you mean a flight attendant? And she goes, no. <laughs> like, I'm a captain. I fly the plane. <laughs> what kind of feminist like, are you? <sighs> oh, that's you know? badass. That is badass. I want to learn to fly planes. Yeah, what? Holly does. She actually does. I want to learn. Really? You know, it's well. It's interesting. You said you had said something about. I think in that interview that you did on the Highline, you had said something about how you're not afraid to die anymore. And I had I for years. Like I love flying in airplanes. I love flying in airplanes. But I and I'd always kind of dreamt to be a pilot. And but there was a very a huge fear of dying. Um, that, you know, prevented that. And I'm on this side. I think I'm very similar to you. I don't, I feel like when I'm going to go, I'm like, my time is like, there's been so many times I should have. I feel like when I'm ready, you know, it's going to happen when it's going to happen. It's, you know, it's not like, and so there's, there is a a huge element of fear, like not fearlessness, but like of, of saying fuck you fear. And so, yeah, I want to learn to fly planes. It's one of my bucket list goals. So I, I honor, I honor that you dated a pilot and it was a female captain. That's fucking awesome. Female captain. And and flies internationally and probably very, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, She's actually coming in tomorrow on rotation and we're going to have dinner. We're, we're good friends. Anyway, we're trying to find ourselves around a friendship. Yeah. And, uh, and I am open, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, please. I don't know who's cool enough for you, though. We'll try. We'll try. <laughs> please. Yes. I love so, it. So, yeah. So that's the scoop, girls. Oh, this is so amazing. I could talk to you forever. I'm going to this. I'm, I told you this on email, but I'm heading to California to go to the Super Bowl tomorrow. We didn't talk about Oh, I hate you. <laughs> oh, my God. I hate you. I want to go Come with me. Come with me. Oh, I wish. Oh, my God. My family. I wish. If you had a ticket, I would literally almost cancel my family and just tell them, hey, the food's here. Just come over and I'll, I'll see you. Monday. Uh. Oh, my God. That is one of, that's one of my goals is to go to, a, like, a really cool Super Bowl at some point, you know? Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully if the Lions ever, ever make it to a Super Bowl, you can bank that I will be there. Well, you're lions and giants, right? You lie on lions and giants, is yeah. right. And so I feel I feel kind of um, a little bit like a like I don't know imposter because I grew up loving football in Denver. You know, I I mean it was it oh was, so your Broncos are in yeah yeah. Nice. So that's why I'm going, but I'm going because my dad's taking me, you know, like I don't, I, I can't do that on my own. He, after, and especially because it was, you know, New England versus Denver and they won and I live in Boston and it was like, right. yes, I'm going fucking you, awesome. Boston. So, uh, so are you into the New England team? No, I've never, oh. I told, I'm like the only woman in this area who doesn't worship tom brady oh thank god not only doesn't worship him i just don't get it um and it was hard i moved here so i moved here this will be our last little bit but i moved here uh right after college and right after like the january before i moved here was the last super bowl that john elway won so i went out i left denver when they were they were amazing and on top and then and i went to that super bowl it was in miami with my dad and then i moved here and it was all New England, New England, and they've been like, they've killed it for the last yeah. 10 years. So I kind of yeah. lost my 
like I, I left the story, you know, because it's like right. it's so much less fun when when you're when it's the same team over and over uh, and over. Yeah, and there's just something about the Patriots that that hurt me. They hurt my soul to watch them, so I just stopped and um, I rekindled just like for this game. And my dad the next day was like, "Do you want to go to the Super Bowl?" I'm like, oh, "Yes." That's yes. so awesome, dude. That makes me so happy that somebody's going there and rooting for my Broncos for my Peyton. Yes. Um, yes. Because I love I love I love Cam and I love that team cuz they're scrappy. Yeah. They remind me of a Detroit team. They remind me of the old Pistons like they're like these bad boys that are out there. And I would if it were any other team but the Giants or Lions, I would root for um for the Panthers, but because it's Peyton, it's like, I want that guy to go out with majesty. I know everybody kind of does. fucking deserves it, man. He deserves it. You know, it's like, I, I mean, I hate the Patriots. I hate Tom Brady, even though he was in <laughs> Michigan, <laughs> even though he went to Michigan, you know, I really, oh, that's right. First. That's right. Yeah. I really loved him at first because he, because he had such a chip on his shoulder. And when he won his first one, even with the second one, even with his third one, I was like, all right, dude, you've proved it. Yeah. But, you know, he became a crybaby and yeah. a cheater and a fucking he's, – he's a sore loser and he's a really sore winner. Yes. Yes. He's a bad that's, winner. I haven't been able to articulate it yet, but that's, yeah. that's it. That's it. He's a baby when he loses and he's a bitch when he wins. He, <laughs> not, he's not a nice winner. Like, he has no grace – or, you know, or compassion or anything in him. Like, yeah. he never goes up on the podium when he wins and says, oh, they were a really good team. And, you know, they gave us like he just is just he's a bitch. Yeah, I wonder yeah. where I wonder what happened if Belichick got got to him or what. You but. Know, and then Belichick is, uh, uh, ew, he's a troll, <laughs> you know, and I just and they're genius and they're so good. They're so good, you can't not respect them. I, you know, I'm always, I was with Gabriella watching that game, that Broncos game. Oh. She was in Zurich, and I was here, and I was like, and she kept saying, oh, babe, don't worry, they won. I'm like, there's 17 seconds, and Brady's got the ball in his hand. You cannot text me and tell me those things because you're going to jinx it. Yeah. And she's like, but they're, they're going to win. They're two points ahead. I'm like, have you ever heard of two-point conversions? <laughs> I'm like, Brady has the ball in his hand, for Christ's sake, and I hung up on her. Oh, I love it. Well, that game was crazy because it was like when they missed that field goal, I was like, that you lose. that's how you lose these games, and it came yes. down to that. Yeah, it was. You know, and I was just like, so after they won, she calls me, and she's like, I told you they would win. And I was like, fuck you. You don't know anything. I was like, you didn't even know that that was a two-point conversion. They could have tied it and won. Like, oh, my God. Like, that, you know, the horror of people not knowing that Brady – and I've seen him get three touchdowns in a minute. Yeah, how many – Win a game. More often than not, that's how it's done. Oh, God. So when people – you know, so anyway, they're so good, but I'm so glad they're out – yeah, so this this weekend, I mean, the, the odds are supposedly stacked against our Broncos. I know, but I have all the faith. I'll uh, I'll send you an email with a picture from the. From please, the please, 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 totally. Yeah, we got some crazy seats, like ten ten rows up. Thanks. Oh, dude, you got to send me some photos. Yeah, for sure. I will. All right, ladies. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure. 
One thing I wanted to say, so it's funny that we started out this, you said like you're, when you're talking about the church that was converted and how you're not one of those people that cries. Um, I'm one of those people that cries. And, um, and I, you know, I read your book and I read it just, I read it a couple of weeks ago. It was, and I have to say it was one of those things that it was just, there were, there was, there were no words. I just, I, I read the whole thing and then at the end of it, I just kind of broke out into tears. And there's something that is so, um, I don't know. There's something so endearing about just about you and your story. And, you know, for anybody that's listening to this that hasn't read the book yet, it is such a beautiful and wonderful story because you're one of the most, I mean, it's just what I came away with was just this sense of just such beautiful vulnerability and, and such a beautiful story of human evolution. And so I just, I have to say thank you for putting that book out there. It was just, it meant a lot to me. And I know it means a lot to many, many people that walk this path. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Holly. That means so much to me. You know, when I went to write the book, it was, I never expected to sell it. I never mm. expected for anybody to ever read it. And so for me, it was just my truth. It was like, this I'm writing for me. And if nobody else sees it, except for Liz, of course, um, it, it won't matter, you know? And so I was really able to be kind and not sit on a pity pot and just be really truthful and just put it out there as as a as a um uh an experience for me as as an exercise for me you know and so when it did go i was like oh my god can i take some of this stuff back <laughs> you know yeah, i was wondering and, about that yeah and then it was like no mm -hmm. you know my editor was like no you can't like this is what makes this book this book yeah. You know, so I had to really, really get with the fear and the angst and all the stuff of like, oh my God, I've like literally just ripped, you know, my clothes off and like opened up my heart and my insides and everybody's looking in. Yeah. And I just thought, okay, well, you know, and I felt like I did it with an entertainment quality because I never put it out there to help anybody but me. Yeah. <laughs> And, and to entertain anybody but me. So people were like, oh, there were parts that were so entertaining and blah, blah, blah. And, and I was like, that's cool because that's the way that it can actually or may actually help people. I didn't put it out there to help people, but I'm so happy when I get feedback like that. And I do get it a lot, you know, like my sister, my brother, my daughter, my mother, you know, yeah. with all things across the board, you know, with food, with alcohol, with drugs, with, um, you know, relationships. With relationships, with, you know, everything, everything. And it all has the thread that we can talk about, you know? So yeah. it's, it's a beautiful thing. And it has really, really changed my life. Um, just being able to be on this side of it and hear other people's stories and be able to say, like, look, it's okay. Yeah. Not only is it okay, but it's beautiful. And it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll add in my little part too, cause I want, cause I, I want you to know. And I, I mean, I read it when I was, had just separated from my husband and, um, and I had a little, I have a daughter and, and she was three at the time and I was living in a tiny, tiny apartment. We were sharing a bed and I was blacking out every night drinking multiple bottles of wine and dosing myself with Ambien. And I read 
your book in that time. And it was after mm -hmm. I had first tried to started to get sober and I knew I shouldn't be drinking anymore and I couldn't get sober. And you wrote about, you know, that you went back, like you went back and said, Hey, I'm, I'm Rhea and I'm one day, I'm one day clean. I'm coming back. And they let you in. And mm -hmm. honestly, I, and you, and you all, you know, the part that you said about that, it being your edge, like that, that is something that has carried me through to now, you know, and I'm mm -hmm. just over a year sober, just thinking like, this is, this is, this can be the biggest thing you've ever done. And like, it, you know, it's not a death sentence. It's like, it's your life that you get to get to live. It was a yeah. flip, it was a flip for me. So oh, I, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah, dude. It's like, you've just opened all your windows and doors. Yeah. And now you get to go out and do everything that you've ever wanted to do without yes. having run back in for, for more juice, you know, because you've got the juice in, in you. Oh, exactly. Oh, no. All right. Thank well, you so much. Okay. You guys are so welcome. Thank you. Infinitely so